we're talking about John Stuart Mill, utilitarianism. And thank God for Anglophone philosophers, at least you can figure out what they're talking about. Um, he has a problem when he comes to justify utilitarianism. Because while it's certainly the case that utilitarianism is utile, <laughs> the question is, why should we try and create the greatest happiness for the greatest number, where happiness is understood to be pleasure? And he says, well, people do pursue pleasure, but what he runs into is Hume's old distinction between is and ought. How does the fact that one person or one billion people pursue pleasure, how does that tell us that anybody ought to pursue pleasure? I mean, that's the problem. So he creates what's arguably the dumbest idea of the 19th century, a century with a lot of <laughs> faulty ideas, but here's the argument. He notes the things that are visible can be seen. Mm -hmm. And uh, things that are audible can be heard. And he finds that pleasure is desirable, which shows that it's desired. And the fact that it's desirable and that it's desired shows you that we're pursuing something intrinsically good. I feel like he's running out of ideas. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Right. In other words, look, desirable is not like visible and audible because desirable things are things that are not just desired by people as an empirical fact because they desire to murder and maim and rape and kill and a whole bunch of stuff. Um, there's two meanings of the word desirable. One is capable of being desired and the other is worthy of desire. And what he's doing is conflating the two and saying, ah, I've seen people pursuing pleasure. And that means that pleasure is desirable. And now that I've shown you that pleasure is desirable, let's move on in my argument. <laughs> so the fact that something is desired doesn't prove that it's desirable. And the fact that people pursue pleasure or pursue uh, utility maximizing activities doesn't prove that they ought to. All right? There's no way to solve that problem for a, for a utilitarian. They're just saying, look, if you want to do this, do this. It seems like it makes sense to us. And there's a lot to be said for that. Utilitarianism began as a radical philosophical movement which tried to change uh, the standards by which we judge morals and legislation. And uh, that goes back to Bentham, a generation before Mill. And uh, in doing that, uh, what they're doing is rejecting Kantian intentional ethics. Instead, they're saying what matters is the consequences, the outcome. Whatever it is that optimizes the amount of pleasure, that's the best thing to do. So, Remember, if you remember the examples I gave you, Kant of uh, the king with the peasants that they want to burn the witch. All right, the Kantian king says, I'm sorry, that's just, we're not, we don't do that. And they say, well, she's a witch and she killed my cow. She says, I don't care. Or, or the king says, I don't care, I'm not doing that. That's a 
clear line here that I'm not going to cross. I don't punish innocent people. And there's a lot to be said for that. I think the king is in the right. But, on the other hand, if the people are going to riot and destroy each other and, you know, engage in murder and mayhem, the utilitarian says, well, that can be avoided by burning the old lady. Um, Do you want the other murders on your hands? Because the policy you're choosing is going to give us that. And that's an interesting kind of retort. And Kant is going to say, yeah, I'm going to do the right thing, (laughs) though the heavens come down, because it's the right thing. Fuck you. The utilitarian says, well, I mean, I can see why you sort of like that, but that's deeply crazy. You're going to say, you know, you're going to allow the world to get killed and suffer an awful gooey death to protect one old lady? That's crazy. Nobody with any sense thinks that. Kant says, I have lots of sense, right? And I think that. So, uh, if you look back on what we've been looking at this summer, or this, you know, COVID year, there are three big things you need to take away with you when you look at the theory of ethics as it's developed in the West. The first is Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, right? There, it's a, (laughs) it's a, it's a practical activity, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know, find the sweet spot, kid. That's about the best you're going to do. So we get Aristotle's golden mean, and we also have the idea that it's the mark of an educated man not to demand more precision from a discipline than it can possibly offer. You don't want to take, except approximations in arithmetic, and you don't look for exact precision, mathematical precision in ethics. It's just not there. So it's like carpentry or cookery, a little bit of this and a dash of, dash of the other, and, you know, you work it out, all right? And that's not a bad idea. Virtue is a mean between two vices. Actually, often that's a really handy thought. Don't overreact, in other words. And yeah, that's actually smart advice. Another alternative is where Kant says, I've, I've had enough of this, all right? Let me tighten this down in my own enlightenment way, right? I am going to be the Newton of the moral world. Aristotle, you are the Aristotle of the pre-Socratic world. The problem is that world's gone and I got something else. And what he gives us is the categorical imperative. Whatever else you might want to get done, do this. Damn, that must have been like a real lightning bolt. And he says that is the categorical imperative. Categorical means absolute. I don't care if it's raining dead people. If it tells you to do that, you fucking do it. (laughs) And, you know, I sort of like it. I mean, it's a bit crazy, but it's also deeply ennobling. Not because you, because of the, the few nightmare cases it gives us, but because, in general, he's right. If you're contemplating something, but you wouldn't want anybody to do that to you, you're probably wrong. <laughs> Matter of fact, you're certainly wrong, Constance. Don't go me any probably. Save that shit for Aristotle. You're wrong. <laughs> we, we do that when things get all mushy. See, for, for him, Aristotle's doing cookery. Kant's doing chemistry. <laughs> we need exactly 1.6 moles of the categorical imperative. <laughs> you know, it's just not like no dash of this and pinch of that. 
Mill is sort of a mushy guy because he never quite says how exactly we're going to measure everyone's happiness. Well, two ways of taking that. Let's take it, uh, let's give it, let's say, the best positive spin and the most negative spin. Best positive spin is that we do this all the time. Mm-hmm. To give you an example, we have people at the CDC who are given a limited budget. The reason why CDC, like everybody, has a limited budget is because we have limited resources with which to approach infinite desire. That's something you have to remember is the background of all of utilitarianism. So the question is, how do we optimally deploy these limited resources to get the most bang for the buck? This is the source of the idea of the cost-benefit analysis. Should we give billions of dollars to do research on COVID, which may save many lives, or should we do research spend the billion dollars on a a headache remedy for an unusual disease that only afflicts six people. Well, um, utilitarianist says, look, crunch the numbers. We're trying to do the best we can with limited resources. I can show you the right way to deploy this money. See, the point is this. Everybody's a utilitarian some of the time. The problem is not that utilitarianism is wrong. The problem is that it's oversold. They sell it as the silver bullet, you know, the solution to all problems in morals and ethics, and it's not. Or you end up burning old ladies, and you know, most people say, there's something wrong here. On the other hand, um, if you can do some great benefit to people, and you're the magistrate in charge, or you can try to cure a small disease that affects a small number of people, clearly the right thing is doing that, and it's not just with diseases. Think of your highway funds. We're, we have so much to spend on highways. What do we do with it? Do we build a highway in New York, or do we build a highway 180 miles out into the Atlantic and then back? And, of course, we've decided to go to New York. Why? Because it's more Utah. Um, so think of it this way. Think of moral theory, Aristotle, Kant, and Mill, at the very least, as giving you a, a toolkit. So you show up, you you got a moral problem. Now, one of the nice things about life is that there are very few moral problems. I mean, movies get made about them, and plays and novels get written about them, but most of the things, the choices we make in life are, are not really moral problems because, well, everybody knows what the right thing to do is. You drive in your car, and you got some school children crossing the street, and you ask yourself, should I run those school children over? And the answer is no, you shouldn't. I mean, you can... Uh, account for it any way you like and give us the Aristotle or the Kant or the Mill but the answer is no and most people don't spend a lot of time wondering hmm I wonder if I should do that you know it's nothing much there to ponder so yeah you'll meet a, a small number of moral problems in your life and the best thing to do there when you don't know your way is to bring out the tools see what answer they give you and then um, if you find that they're law lining up on one side or the other, well then you have your answer. There are a few strange cases, like I've tried to suggest to you, where they don't line up and there it's hard to know what to do. And that's where Aristotle's idea of phrenesis comes in. Remember we said, look, none of this works unless you have, have good judgment. And uh, I suspect in the long run that that is inevitably true. That without good judgment, Um, even Kantian ethics um, isn't going to be practically uh, workable.
So uh, that's why I had you read Mill. Yeah, he's a tad boring, um, but uh, you know, we can look at some of his at some of his arguments, like Jesus was the first utilitarianism, another utilitarian, another rubbish, uh, and have some fun with it because look, on the one hand. Um, we see difficulties, but on the other hand, look, if you're a general and you're under attack and you need to make a retreat, you may have to sacrifice a thousand to protect a million. Uh, and you say, well, we, we don't have a way of finding out how much the aggregate pleasure and pain is. That's true, but it does allow us to make gross uh, judgments here. Would I rather lose a million men or a thousand? On the other hand, when we try to get finer judgments, it's, it breaks down. Why? Because there's no analog of British happiness units. You know, British thermal units, you can actually do physics of heat transfer if you look at that. There's no such thing as a British happiness unit, though. So when you get down to the sense of, uh, well, who's getting... Uh, here's a good utilitarian problem. Uh, there's an accident on the highway. Traffic is backed up a long way. There are a lot of angry people but somebody's life is on the line. How many angry people is worth that one life? Well, how angry are they? <laughs> All right. Mm. How many uh, missed dentist appointments? How many missed weddings? How many missed airline connections? Are you actually getting, or if the line is long enough, are we going to say, I'm sorry, you're going to have to bleed out. Uh, he has to get to the dentist. He's having bridge work. <laughs> <laughs> right. On the other hand, that's the logic of it. Right. Uh, also, it's going to lead you to things like uh, equating animals with human beings because suffering is suffering. Right. Uh, when it says uh, to create the greatest good for the greatest number, it doesn't say just for human beings. So somebody like Peter Singer is going to give you uh, arguments to the effect that all neurons are created equal. And as long as the synapses are firing, um, the pleasure that they're getting is uh, deserving of moral regard. Uh, sometimes, or at least with some people, uh, a lot an analogous to that of people. In others, it gets a moral regard less than that of people, but still moral regard. And in others, they just don't think it has moral significance at all. I'm kind of in that mushy middle. I don't want to do anything gruesome to animals, but I don't want to uh, sacrifice any people so that animals can have their rights.